The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. I'm Lara Unterstall. I, yeah, and I'm Mike Nooney. <laughs> I wanted to do that, <laughs> and I didn't. I, I, I remember, I've got more thoughts about that, but I remember reading that word and for 10 years not knowing how to pronounce it. And I was like, I, <laughs> anyways, that's my little Southerners. Um, anyways, but we are joined by a very special guest today. You know her as Joby's 89 from Bookstagram. Joanne, welcome to the pod. Hi, everyone. I'm so incredibly excited to be on one of my favorite podcasts to discuss one of my favorite horror movies. So this is going to be a lot of fun, oh, I think. Yay. I know. I'm so excited. Yes. Thank you for joining thank us. Thank you. Um, and this is a comfort horror episode, and we define comfort horror as the scary movies that bring us joy. And the movie we're talking about t- today definitely brings me joy, but it also brings <laughs> me lots of sorrow and lots and lots of tears, and I cannot wait to talk about it. Uh, Joanne, what movie were we talking about today? And today we're discussing 1989's Pet Cemetery, directed by Mary Lambert. Yes. Yay. Hell yeah. Oh, a lady director. I love it. Yeah. Um, but too. before we do... <laughs> Oh, 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 a woman directing a movie. <laughs> what? She's a witch. <laughs> My monocle has fallen out. You can't yeah, see it. Just shattered. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, but before we do, we're going to give a brief synopsis in case you haven't seen Pet Cemetery or it's been a while. So here's your spoiler warning: the spoil of a man's heart is spoiler. <laughs> Perfect. I, uh, <laughs> oh, that got me. I, I apologize don't... to Fred Gwynn <laughs> and Stephen King. Oh, there's going to be a lot of all of us doing the Fred Gwynn voice, and I <laughs> true. apologize in advance. Me too. It's out of love, though. It's out yeah. of love. <laughs> all right. Enter the pet cemetery where kids have been burying their beloved pets for decades. It's time for some truck shadowing as a giant truck blasts by the new home of the Creed family, who've just moved to rural Maine from Chicago. What up? Chicago in the house. Okay. (laughs) I mean, if they had just stayed there. This is just evidence you shouldn't ever move out of Chicago. Well, I don't know. (laughs) Well, that would be a different podcast. The creeds consist of Papa Lewis, Mama Rachel, a.k.a. Tasha Yar, sorry, kids Ellie and Gage, and their cat, Church. Ellie immediately skins her knee on a tire swing, giving toddler Gage an opportunity to wander into the road. He's about to get smashed by a truck when a kindly old gentleman picks him up. This is Judd Crandall, as played by the, dare I say, iconic Fred Gwynn. Ellie asks about a trail leading down into the woods, but Judd says that's a story for another time. That time turns out to be later that night when Lewis stops by to have a porch beer, thus beginning a beautiful but extremely doomed friendship. Hmm. Judd says the road uses up pets and the path leads to a pet cemetery where they're all buried. 
Later, we meet the Creed's housekeeper named Missy, who is quite dour due to constant stomach pain that she refuses to seek medical attention for. Time for a hiking trip to the pet cemetery. Rachel has some issues with death. I wonder if there's a reason for that, and if the film will reveal that reason? Who can say? <laughs> Who can say, except the movie very, very shortly. <laughs> we can, in about four right. minutes. No right. <laughs> Judd says a graveyard is a place where the dead speak. LOL, not really, just with their gravestones. <laughs> not really, six-year-old. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I'm really putting you on an emotional roller coaster yeah. here. I know. Judd Crandall, <laughs> terrorizing children for eight decades. Oh. Yeah. Later on, <laughs> Ellie has some questions for Lewis about church dying. Let God get his own cat. It's a pretty healthy conversation, and Lewis handles it well. Begin the process of me getting way too invested in this family, no matter how many times I see the damn movie. Uh-huh. Soon, everything is blossoming. Church is getting fixed. Ellie is starting school. Lewis is off to his first day of work at the university hospital. I'm sure it'll all be great. Not my wife. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I didn't know how to. Not my wife. That's that's it. My wife. Okay, I, I'll stop doing that. A student named Pascal, who Jen wants you to know she's always had a weird crush on, got hit by a car while jogging, and you can basically see half his brain. Okay, weird crush, Jen, but okay. <laughs> I know. I can, the heart wants what the heart wants. Oh, yeah, that's okay. true. You know, you just never know. Oh, I lost my place. Hold on, sorry. Okay. <laughs> Alone with Lewis after seemingly passing on, Pascal wakes up and intones, The soil of a man's heart is stonier, Lewis. I'll come for you. Then he dies. And Lewis's question, how do you know my name? He's asking the right. wrong questions. True. Yeah, there's yeah like, the question should be, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, what, what, what the actual fuck? Yeah. Later that night, the spirit of Pascal wakes Lewis up and takes him down to the pet cemetery. He wants to help him because Lewis tried to save his life. He tells him it's okay to go to the place where the dead talk, but not where the dead walk. He should also avoid places where dead jocks flock. Don't balk, let's rock. The beat drops. It turns into a full rap music video. I don't remember this part. I, I'm kidding. I'm sorry. I, I really almost deleted that several times. And I, and I, I should have. I'm so glad you did it. I... Uh, <laughs> Uh, okay. A blue light glows. When you rhyme, what do you expect? You I know? can't I can't help myself. Uh a blue light glows down the path. Pasco says the barrier was not meant to be crossed and the ground beyond is sour. Lewis wakes up to find his feet all muddy. Was he really down there? It's Thanksgiving now, and Rachel is going back to Chicago with the kids to visit her parents. Lewis isn't going because Rachel's dad is an asshole. While they're gone, Church gets run over in the road and dies in Judd's yard. Judd ominously asks what Lewis wants to do. They head to the cemetery, and Judd tells him they're going past the deadfall, exactly where Pascal just told him not to go. Don't do it, Lewis! <laughs> now they're hiking through the woods, and there are some loon cries that sound suspiciously like terrifying monsters. <laughs> Finally, they arrive at an epic burial ground, <laughs> which Judd claims was once used by the Micmac Indian tribe. Judd tells Lewis he has to bury Church in the stony soil. Each buries his own. I, I, yup, uh, gotta bury your own, Lewis. I, uh, yup. Sometimes dead is better. Okay, that's later. I, I just, oh. okay. I, 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 I
oh, that's me doing my, my John voice. <laughs> <laughs> Ellie calls and asks how church is. Lewis lies and says he's fine. And hey, what the fuck? He actually is totally fine. Except that now he's an evil zombie demon cat from beyond the grave. <laughs> that was a hard <laughs> phrase, harder phrase than I expected to get out. <laughs> Lewis asks Judd what's up with his newly undead cat. Judd tells him a delightful story about the burial ground that brings animals back to life. But sometimes they come back a little bit evil, like his own childhood dog. <laughs> this story might have been helpful before we buried the cat, Judd. <laughs> but, but no, no, don't worry. No one has ever buried a person in the pet cemetery. Definitely not. He, 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 he. You can tell Judd is telling the truth when he says this because he knocks over all of his beer bottles. <laughs> Missy dies by suicide. Sorry, this is a hard transition. <laughs> okay. I know. <laughs> and then Missy kills herself. Um, okay. Cut to an upsetting scene where Missy dies by hanging herself, tired of her constant stomach pain. At her funeral, Stephen King gives the eulogy. There he is. There's daddy. <laughs> all, all the creeds go except Rachel, who has been really upset since Missy died. It turns out she had an older sister who died of spinal meningitis in the back bedroom of her childhood home. Rachel had to help take care of her, even though she was just eight years old. She was alone when Zelda died. It was very traumatic for Rachel, partly because she wanted Zelda to die so she wouldn't have to deal with it anymore, and the guilt and trauma and fear of death and the refusal of her family to, to, to discuss it have haunted her for all her days. Lewis says her parents are assholes for leaving her alone with Zelda. He is not wrong. It's time for a lovely family picnic in the front yard of the house by the road where semi-trucks speed by. What could go wrong? <sighs> this is the incredibly sad and upsetting part where little tiny Gage flies a kite. Lewis turns his back for one second and Gage runs into the road. Judd sees it happening and Lewis runs after his son, but it's too late. A truck blasting Sheena is a punk rocker runs Gage over, obliterating him and making me feel weird for liking that song so much. Sorry. I'd say like every time this scene comes up in the movie, I'm both like ready to sob and singing along with Sheena as a punk rocker. Mm. And it just, it creates cognitive dissonance that I don't, I don't enjoy. We definitely did last night. Yeah, definitely yeah. We're singing along oh. to it. I think I do that to dissociate from what's yeah. happening. I just yeah. go like, Gina is a long I, I definitely, like when it hit Gage, raised my arms like he had been booted through a field go post. Like, just to, oh, no. Mike. Kinda, evil. To, evil. Oh, no. Oh, it, was, it was definitely to do it to, like, break the tension. Not because. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We, we do it We do it to, because we're actually yes. incredibly sad. Okay. Yes. <laughs> In the aftermath, Rachel's dad causes a ruckus at Gage's funeral, blaming Lewis for the death of his son. Everyone is screaming and crying. Man, this fucking sucks. Back at home, Judd has another story that definitely could have helped Lewis before he buried Church. Turns out someone did bury a person up there decades ago. Timmy Baderman. <laughs> uh, sorry. It did not go well. Let's just say Timmy basically became a zombie and a bunch of townsfolk set him and his father on fire. Oops. Judd as thinks that uh, worst possible one, outcome. Oh, yeah, just 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 the absolute worst possible outcome. Right. Judd thinks that by introducing Lewis to the power, he may have accidentally caused Gage's death. Great, thanks, Judd. <laughs> Lewis is sending Ellie and Rachel back to Chicago. He'll join them in a few days, but first he has an appointment with a shovel. He goes to the cemetery <laughs> in broad daylight and starts digging up Gage's body. I don't know. I guess things were different in the 80s. <laughs> Less people watching the watching the clock. Uh, 
Back in Chicago, Ellie has a dream that Lewis is going to do something really bad and tells her mom that Paxcow told her this. Rachel connects the dots to Pascal, the slain college student, and rushes back to Maine as the disembodied spirit of Pascal guides her and says a bunch of one-liners. <laughs> Lewis buries Gage in the Micmac burial ground, then heads home to take a good old shoes-on nap. We see a tiny hand push through some rocks. As Lewis sleeps, Gage comes home. He digs through Lewis's doctor bag and finds a scalpel. This is a good reminder to secure all sharp objects and other weapons in your household before resurrecting your dead son. <laughs> Just a little bit of advice. Judd wakes from a porch nap to see tiny, muddy footprints leading into his house. He hears an evil toddler's laugh and goes inside. Unluckily for him, Gage wants to play hide-and-seek. Judd then gets pet cemetery, which is the medical term for having your Achilles tendon sliced by an undead toddler with a scalpel. Owie, owie, owie! <laughs> Evil baby Gage, who is still pretty cute, to be honest, slices the felt Judd's (laughs) face and bites his neck. R.I.P. Judd, you made everything worse. I'm sorry. Uh, I didn't love him so much. I know, I know. It's just (laughs) like, especially on this watch, I was like, come on, man. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Really is the worst neighbor in horror movie history. (laughs) He tries. I mean, he might be. Road to hell is paved. Okay. Yeah, with Judd intentions. With Judd, with Judd intentions. I, that should and be a Gage. T-shirt. The road to hell is paved with Gage. No, Mike. Mike no, Mike. I'm gonna far. beat your ass. <laughs> Come on, this man. revenge for all the times I delighted in men crying. <laughs> Rachel gets home just in time to hear a familiar voice and laughing from Judd's house. There she sees Zelda, who rushes at her, saying she'll never get out of bed again. She flinches and closes her eyes, but when she opens them, it's just sweet little Gage dressed in that fucked up top hat and velvet out from the painting in her childhood home. She hugs her baby without realizing he's evil, though to be honest, the outfit should have tipped her off. (laughs) It really should have. Terrific. Also like twirling his mustache a little bit, you know? Edith just started yelling, he's a fancy lad, over and over. (laughs) He is a fancy lad. It's true. She oh, lost so it. She was laughing so hard. <laughs> the next morning, Lewis rolls out of bed and takes a corner of the table to his face. I don't know why that makes me laugh, but it does. He sees muddy footprints. It's just like, oi, oh, it looks ow. so painful. <laughs> I know. I can't imagine that was on purpose. Like, he must have just accidentally and they just yeah. used it. The movie it just kind of rolls yeah. right past it. Yeah. Yeah. He sees muddy footprints and his open doctor's bag. Not good. The phone rings. It's Rachel's asshole dad who wants to know if Rachel got home okay. Ellie had a dream that her mom was dead. Lewis hangs up on him. The phone rings again, but this time it's Gage. His little voice says he had playtime with Judd and Mommy. And now I want to play with you. He says you in a very particular way. <laughs> with you. a you. It's like he says it. and I can't do it. Okay. You, it's so you. It's like there's like five syllables he gets out of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> moving on. Lewis loads up his pockets with syringes full of lethal amounts of sedatives or something and heads across the street, looking pissed. First, he puts down poor undead evil church, who honestly hasn't done much wrong other than act like most cats, pissed off occasionally, scratching your face. He walks into <laughs> yeah. Judd's house, which is now covered in bubbling green goo and looking all haunted and shit. It's only slightly creepier than it was originally. (laughs) 
Or if I, <laughs> I, I, yeah, you know, what, what can you do? He finds Judd's disfigured body. <laughs> then in the hall, Rachel's body drops from the attic, hanged by the neck. He looks up and Gage comes flying at him, slashing with the scalpel. Lewis manages to get the syringe in his neck. He has to kill his son. It's very upsetting. As Gage says, no fair, no fair, no fair. Lewis does the only logical thing and burns the house down, but not before heading to the burial ground with Rachel's corpse. Surely this time it'll be different, right? Right? Pascal's ghost begs Lewis not to make it worse. Narrator. He makes it worse. (laughs) (laughs) That was the Ron Howard moment. Uh, Back at home. I like when I have to explain a joke. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) That's when you know it's really funny. (laughs) Back at home, Lewis plays solitaire and waits for Rachel to come home to him. She does, and they share a terrible kiss as goo spews out of her eye socket. We see that she has a knife. She raises it, and the screen goes black as we hear a slash and Lewis scream. The end. I don't want to be buried in the sad cemetery. I don't want to live my life again. It really ends on such a high. I know. actually... I'm pretty sure that was Joey Ramone just reading his will, like, look, please. Well, oh, yeah. We miss you. Joey just the Pet Cemetery yes. clause. The yeah, yeah. That's, we all. P.S. We all. Are. It is important in these trying times to have a Pet Cemetery clause in your will. <laughs> that's true. Okay. Uh, yay. All right. So now let's do a feelings check. And whoo, I have a lot of feelings about this movie. Um, this is where we share our first experience with the film and how we feel when we watch it. And Joanne, would you care to kick us off, please? Yes. Yeah, so I actually can't exactly remember the first time I watched it, if I'm honest. I don't have any traumatic childhood experiences of seeing Zelda for the first time or anything. Um, I think, <laughs> no, that's good. Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad for that. Um, I first started reading King like 78 years ago. So Pet Cemetery was the third King I read and it became my favorite. Um, not just my favorite king, but my favorite book of all time. And I think I must have watched oh. it quite soon after that. Um, and just really enjoyed it for how faithful it is to the book, obviously. You know, Stephen King's fingerprints are all over it, clearly because he wrote the screenplay mm-hmm. and was so heavily involved with it. But weirdly, this movie makes me feel understood. And that's where I get a comfort from it. Because mm-hmm. Pet Cemetery was the first book I ever read that perfectly depicted my own experiences with grief. And the first mm-hmm. half of the movie or so is pretty wholesome um, as they move to rural Maine and everything's lovely and they're enjoying the autumn vibes before shit hits the fan. So the first half is really nice mm-hmm. and comforting. Um, but yeah, it makes me feel warm inside whilst also pulling on my heartstrings. <laughs> but I think it works because <laughs> the campiness of it at times and the poor acting as well kind of detracts a little from the emotional trauma, which is nice. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's kind of how I feel when I watch it. It's like a comfort, but also a traumatic experience but also campy so mm-hmm. bit of everything yeah. <laughs> uh mike what about you yeah this would have been like a staple of the vhs days like i know i didn't see it in theaters like i'll be honest like the early late late 80s early 90s are kind of like a big blur in terms of watching movies um it feels like i didn't see a lot of great horror at the theater and just would like rent a videotape with friends and watch it where I think it made its biggest impression, there's actually a local haunted attraction. We live about 10 minutes from it, where when you're waiting in line under the awning for it, 
they show a lot of clips from horror movies, like, you know, like one minute clips. And one of the ones that's on a lot is like Zelda. That is probably where like that movie, where this movie really took hold. Like I read the book far too young. Like I think I read it in an elementary school and understood very little of what was going on at parts. And it was one of my favorite Stephen King books. I think it's one of the better Stephen King adaptions from this era. Mm -hmm. That said, that's also yeah. like saying you are the best tree in the play because there are a lot of terrible, <laughs> terrible Stephen King movies in the mid 80s through the mid 90s. Um, and mm -hmm. anything that's just competent looks like Rashomon by <laughs> comparison. But this is really good. Like that said, like it is actually a really good, fun movie. Like mm -hmm. there's a lot. We talked uh, on our, I think one of our last shows about what makes for a great Halloween season movie. And this is one that does like tons of atmosphere. Parts are just creepy as hell. Fred Gwynn, I, I, Fred Gwynn gives an absolutely masterful performance. The creeds themselves, not so much. They're just kind of like <laughs> bland. They're kind of like Melba toast. And my <laughs> daughter was just ripping on Ellie through the whole movie. It made it fun. Um, yeah, you, you know, oh, yeah, I don't yeah. love Ellie. <laughs> it is, is still a really, really yeah. powerful story. There's a ton of great themes to it. Rewatching this movie as a dad, it and I think like I make a lot of humor about this movie because like a lot of it sits uncomfortably with me. And rather than kind of face mm -hmm. those feelings, I would just rather push them aside and crack wise. <laughs> mm -hmm. It definitely taps yeah. into like one of my largest fears as a dad of like, what if because you can't protect your children forever like it must have been tough being a doctor at a university where you can't afford a fence to protect your children sorry that's again just <laughs> i know I mean, build a goddamn yeah. fence i know it, there's some logical things in this that are you know questionable like but, yeah. my daughter was like screaming like look at your kid you idiot like before it even no. happened and um yeah. yeah it's hard like it's a hard hard and we'll talk about the mistakes we make as an adult but great i gotta mm -hmm. say this is a great pick for a comfort horror episode so looking forward to diving into mm -hmm. it lara what about you yeah uh, i feel like this was constantly on tv when i was a kid much like jaws i think like this and jaws were constantly on whatever wh whatever you know tv station my dad left the television on that would play after cubs game so i think it would have been like wgn or upn or something like so i feel like as a child this was just just playing you know and it's one of those things where you would walk in and, and it would be halfway through or at the beginning or toward the end but no matter what I was doing I would stop and and, and watch it and I definitely feel it's it's one of those movies that to me is bizarre because it it has got that like palatable 80s campiness and then the way it's shot and stuff where tv stations are like yes we'll put this on there's nothing too explicitly awful to keep it off of television but um it's really no nevertheless like actually extremely disturbing and unsettling when you're a child i think especially obviously like most kids the zelda scenes freaked me the fuck out i've always had issues with Ill illness and depictions of illness and seeing anybody that's sick and it's like one of my biggest fears so that those sequences really 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 got to me and i you know i think we'll discuss later that depiction in more detail and all the baggage that comes with it um but yeah it really just scared the shit out of me and um 
as an adult, I think it just make, it makes me a lot sadder than it ever did as a kid. And I don't know if it was just I was watching it yesterday for this and it had been a few years since I saw it. And I was also I, I took a break from watching Midnight Mass to go and watch this. And so I was just like in an emotionally charged <laughs> state. Like I'm just like watching oh, all this wow. incredibly sad shit. So it was it was getting to me, I think, more than it ever had. I, I do think it's, you know, by far one of the best King adaptations. And it. it it holds up remarkably well. There's definitely a camp element to it, but beyond that, like, I mean, and like Mike said, there's, it's a, it's a low bar, but I think it's good. And especially like, you know, I don't know that this is a hot take or even a controversial one, but I still love it so much more than the remake. I think um, there's, yeah. yeah, And like, (laughs) and I could never quite, I mean, it's been too long since I saw the remake. I only saw it once in theaters and was like, eh, but that was it. Like I walked out of that going, meh, I didn't really feel that much. And this just, just it's sometimes things are more than the sum of their parts and I can't put my finger on Mm -hmm. why. And this is one of those movies. And I think it sort of speaks for itself because it has stayed with so many people far more than it should for the kind of movie that it is, which, if, you know, is a little bit paint by numbers, 80s genre film. But somehow it just, you mm-hmm. know, it works. And I agree that some of the like, especially the adult, especially the dad, as hot as he is, is a kind of a bland <laughs> performance. He's so There's hot. like, yeah. He's, he's so hot. Yeah. Like, oh, my God. And Tasha Yar, too. I call her Tasha Yar because I'm a Star Trek fan. But um, the actress. <laughs> they're both hot. Mother, Very hot couple. Yeah. I mean, they're 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 gorgeous uh-huh. people. I, I think her performance is stronger than his just from like a pure acting chops perspective. And I, I actually really like the kids. I think the kids make this movie. They I mean, mm-hmm. yes, uh, Ellie is like annoying and screaming constantly, but I buy it. You know, I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm like, you're watching this mm-hmm. little girl get like progressively more traumatized. Yeah. And so like, you know, the fact that she's kind of emotionally volatile and like the kid that plays Gage is so She's fucking awesome. cute like the performances they great. got yeah the performances mm-hmm. they that the director got out of those children are really remarkable I think like you know I don't l- always love a lot of child performances and there's a lot of ethical stuff that goes with that as well but um I think that I think that's what makes this movie for me and what makes it you know and fred gwynn you know yeah you forget yeah. just love him and his ridiculous you know sometimes dad is better i like his, his I plan can, to yeah. stay wide awake in the porch by drinking a six pack of beer <laughs> oh That's yeah a feel good you. idea yeah good idea fred. he is he's kind of like the john depp in mm-hmm. nightmare before elm street like he's the glenn of this movie in a lot of ways like good intentions but my god dude like just fucking get it get your shit together mm-hmm. could i, I interject with two hottish takes yeah, and I'm done, so yeah. you can interject away. Okay. The Pet Cemetery remake is a great example of why I mistrust a lot of festival reviews mm. because like coming out of like the festivals, like it got tons of raves. And I feel that was a lot of it was like we got to see it first. You know what I mean? Like the excitement mm. of seeing something like that first. Also, Pet Cemetery 2 is Awesome. I've never actually seen it. I didn't realize that existed until I was Googling up the movie to watch it on streaming and I accidentally yeah. Googled Pet Cemetery 2 and I was like, they made a Pet Cemetery 2. I had no idea. It King demanded his name be taken off mm-hmm. of it. Like he was so and it's by the same director. Oh, really? But she yeah. gets she gets to put like the thing about this is it's very much like the text is just put right on the screen. Like there's not a lot of Mary Lambert in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The second movie is pure Mary Lambert, and it is like it's got Edward Furlong in it. It's got I can't think of his name now, but I really fucking like him. Clancy it's Brown really and Goose. Clancy Brown. Yeah, I it's love Clancy Brown. Really, really campy. Like you could call it camp. It's it. 
you could I camp something. I don't oh, know. Oh, it's, it's absolutely awesome. yeah. it's a lot yeah. of fun. The fun. pro you would for love it, Pet Cemetery, you would love it. yeah, I think you would like it. My pro for it is uh, Dream Crush John Connor in it. <laughs> My big negative, and it almost ruins the entire movie, is the mashed potatoes scene where he spits out mashed potatoes all over the place. Is so gross to me <laughs> and so like viscerally upsetting yeah. to me, and that's my own particular issues that it almost ruins that movie for me. I gotta but, go watch yes, it, it immediately. Clancy after Brown this. is terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> I know, yeah, the best and the worst. Um, I love, love Pet Cemetery. Um, I remember, this might be my first experience with King. Like, I talked about this with Children of the Corn. I remember being at a slumber party and finding the VHSs of Pet Cemetery and Children of the Corn and just being like, what is this? I need to know more about it, but also really afraid. Um, and so I remember I saw this movie probably too young, and I, it scared the shit out of me. And then I read the book and it scared the shit out of me. This is still, it's not my favorite King, but it's in my top five of favorite King and favorite books ever. And it's probably the book I've read more than any other book in my life. Like this was one I kept going back to. And I love it because it hits the scary, like creepy, something's behind me scares, but also like the emotionally complex scares that I, like it gets both of those. It's just so dark and I love it. Um, that said, have not been able to reread the book since having kids, and I have even tried and gotten up to the page where they're flying the kite and just, like, not been able to do it. I, I probably, I might try try again soon because I do love it. It's such a good book. Um, I remember, like, this book, this story has been with me through, like, most of my life, and it kind of hits at these little tent poles. Like, I... I remember I slept with my lights on for like through high school, like because I just read so much scary shit. And I and the biggest thing I remember being afraid of is church jumping up on my bed in the middle of the night. And I didn't even have cats, but I was just so afraid. And I don't know if it was just that he kind of just encapsulated this the fear that I had of this movie, but also like the fascination. Um, I love Fred Gwynn. And the other thing that it has always kind of really connected with me is when I was 16, I uh, got diagnosed with scoliosis, which is curvature of the spine. And so I had a spinal fusion and it's fine now, like everything went fine. But I remember my parents telling me that. And the first thing I thought was Zelda oh. and I was terrified and I was like, I'm going to die in the back room. <laughs> and I mean, it's not like scoliosis is not the same thing as spinal meningitis. It was nothing like that experience. But that is just that always stuck with me. It's just that moment of just being terrified because of her, you know, and I think it just speaks to the power of King's writing and the power of this story that that 10 minute like flashback is one of the most memorable parts of this movie and how terrifying that is. Um, and I also wanted to note, like there's a documentary that is um, kind of making festival rounds called Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, I believe. And Mike, I think it's coming to Telluride, right? You just, yep. We're showing it in two parts because of the length of the documentary. So it's mm -hmm. almost like an intermission, but playing Telluride Horror is the folk horror documentary, which is, this is really cool. Kirla Janice's movie. Yes, it, it is. is. Yes, yes. It's so good. I saw it at South by Southwest. It's so good. And it mentions um, Pet Cemetery, and I won't say anything else, but it just, it caused me to reframe this story as folk horror because it is an Indian burial ground story, oh, yeah. technically. I mean, I think, I just wanted to mention that because I think, like, as much as I love this story, and I don't, 
find it particularly offensive because I don't think it really goes into the lore. Like, it's also not my place to say that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have heard, like, I have talked about this in the past and somebody reached out from the Micmac tribe and was just talking about the culture related to it. And that was really interesting. Oh, that is interesting. Um, but yeah, so... It was because yeah, it's something like, I've I've wanted to learn more about because mm-hmm. it's something I definitely was thinking about this time. So you know maybe we mm-hmm. can share something in the show notes or something that gets more into that. Yeah, yeah, but like just thinking about this and several other Stephen King stories as folk horror, I thought I found really fascinating. So that's kind of my new obsession is kind of like evaluating it from another lens. So those are all my feelings. Like I have a lot of feelings about this. I think the scene where Gage dies is shot so incredibly well and it's so powerful. Like just the silence and then like the pictures yes. of him. I couldn't watch and it. And the this little time. shoe um, as well, I think it's just horrendous. Oh, I know. Oh, it's just, but yeah, I do think this is one of Stephen King's best adaptations because I think Mary Lambert understands what the story is about. And I think that's where people miss on King's adaptations is they don't understand like the heart of the story, you know, Mm -hmm. and they just kind of focus on the scares. And I think this one has both. Um, well, and so speaking of that, now let's dig in to to this. The soil is thin, but I think we'll be okay. I, I, uh, I. I feel like there's a lot of overlap between a southern accent and a main accent, I, and I just can't find it. <laughs> I was I was trying to figure out like what how his and I noticed that his like mouth hangs open in a certain way every time he says things. He goes ah, and then it's like and it's a lot of like uh-huh. ah 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 noises, and so uh-huh. that's this all is thin and ah ah. Anyway, this is me <laughs> very badly trying to figure out accents. I hope you enjoyed that segment. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, and so maybe we should start with Fred Gwynn because. He is just fantastic. I love him in this. Um, he, he, I can't imagine any other actor in this role. And when I heard that John Lithgow was going to uh, play him, actually, I thought he did a fairly good yeah. job of this yeah. character. It's just so hard to see anybody yeah. else, you know. Yeah. And I, I wish agree. he had kind of done the accent as well. I kind of feel like so much of Judd is wrapped up in that main accent. And I thought John Lithgow yeah. would do the accent. But then when he didn't, I was kind of mm-hmm. disappointed then. But on the topic yeah. of um, Fred Gwynn, I just think that he really embodies that character. And, you know, he's the kind of character that although he's not, you know, going to lead you down the right path, um, I would still like to sit on the porch with him and have a beer. He kind of seems like he knows a lot mm-hmm. and has stories to tell. He has that, you know, comforting grandfatherly feel. But you also kind of sense a darkness underneath where he knows things and you know, you're kind of wondering what's he going to do with that information. But yeah, I think mm-hmm. he's just this perfect casting for me. Yeah, yeah. completely agree. Yeah. There's the scene where they're about to, the thing that stuck out to me on this watch was when they are deciding or when he is deciding whether he's going to take Lewis and just the way Mary Lambert shoots it and he's got this hood yeah. up and he's just got this really dark look on his face was really creepy and like eerie to me. And I hadn't ever noticed that this time. Yeah. Quite sinister, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Sinister. Yeah. His face has like a like he can be both very warm and grandfatherly and incredibly sinister looking, and that mm. you know is 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 mm. both a testament to his like bone structure <laughs> and to his acting. <laughs> you know, and I I haven't read the book since I was a kid, which I also read way too young and like barely remember. Um, so I don't know. This this watch, I was like the character of Judd, obviously you start to get really pissed off at him at some point. You're like, dude. But I also kind of got the sense that like the, everyone in this, every character in this movie was like kind of caught in the sort of fatalistic 
beam if you will of this of this uh of this burial mm-hmm. ground and like you know he was almost being manipulated by that energy and like like sort of like mm-hmm. he was going against his better judgment mm-hmm. telling him to do things like i don't know why i told you to bury the cat i just didn't think your daughter was ready yet so on some level i kind of forgive him mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. as much as i'm like angry watching the movie like you know yeah. or would be angry as lewis you know but so i thought that was interesting and i don't i don't remember if that's a theme that you know king gets more into in the book but I definitely picked up on it this time. I seem to remember in the book Judd talking about like the ground almost like calling out to persons. Right. Mm. That like it is almost like emanating some sort of like subliminal power over persons mm. where if you have this knowledge, then you're somehow forced to share it. It's also one of those things where I have to imagine Judd is probably one of the last residents of his kind of era still Mm -hmm. alive like you get the impression that judd is a very lonely man yes in this movie and i know in the 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 excise the um character of judd's wife from the movie um but they're very much like he's very much the last person of his era and you have this if when judd dies the knowledge of the pet cemetery will die it as well and what it must be like to have this tremendous secret and Mm -hmm. not be able to share it like that would be a tremendous a very difficult thing not to share Mm -hmm. even when you understand and i think we'll talk more about it later like the inevitable consequences of of sharing this kind of knowledge and the kind Mm of ruin it can lead to but yeah, yeah. gets gets the reward for worst neighbor in horror movie history (laughs) but he's also so nice I know, yeah, and it's like you, your heart just goes out to him because I really do feel like he wants to do the yeah. right thing, or he wants to help, you mm-hmm. know. And I think it's a little like in the book, it's not Missy. Missy does not exist in the book. It's his wife that mm-hmm. dies. Mm. So there's that element of grieving that he yeah. is going through as well. Yeah. That just kind of, you know, I I understand why they didn't do that in the book. You know what? It, what it was for me this time around that like tur- not turned me off a of Judd because I, I still like the character, <laughs> but at the funeral for Missy, when Judd asks like, Lewis, how's your cat? And he's like, it's, it's not my cat. It's like, no, it is your cat now. Like, and to me, it's like, Lewis never asked for the cat. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, yes. And I get what Judd is saying. Well, you buried the cat. He now belongs to you. It's like, well, Lewis never asked for the cat. And I, and I mean that in a, literal in a figurative sense so it's like you've given him this burden that he mm-hmm. didn't ask for mm-hmm. yeah it's unfair to yeah lewis in that moment i do want to just i wanted to touch on because what you said mike about him being the last of his era in this sort of you know very very small town i had never really thought of that before and i think that 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 really dovetails with the whole discussion of grief it's like a man at the end mm-hmm. of his life sees maybe one mm-hmm. last chance to to you know quote right some wrongs or grasp onto life you know in in the last few moments while he still can and i think that might that might dovetail well with the the, the conversation we might want to have mm-hmm. about grief mm-hmm. yeah. in this yeah yeah well let's let's move into grief i know joanne you had made that point as well like the accurate depiction of of grief like you had that here in your notes and i was wondering like what you know we can find comfort in grief like even though it's horrible Mm -hmm. we can find comfort in a collective or shared grief but what in about pet cemetery hits for you in particular well 
I love how in Pet Cemetery you get both the immediate grief in that you have obviously Lewis and the family after Gage dies, but you also see like the long lasting effects of grief, which is obviously Rachel's traumatic childhood. Um, and I relate to both of those, but it's funny because Rachel actually used to kind of annoy me until I realized that she was me, <laughs> um, which was fun to discover. But it's only been like working through my own past trauma this year that I look at Rachel and I can see why she is the way she is. Um, her reluctance to discuss death, to shy away from it, to want to protect the kids. You know, the way she feels when she discusses Zelda, because these are all experiences that I had whenever I was nine. I lost my dad to a progressive illness and have carried that trauma my whole life and I kind of resonated with that because I wouldn't talk about it I didn't want to discuss it I just became really you know closed off about it I guess and that's kind of held me back in some ways and has led to me having an anxiety disorder which is a nice bonus to it all but <laughs> it's kind of just like you know the like the grief she felt as well as the guilt and the trauma and the feelings that you know she says like whenever Zelda died like not that she was obviously glad that she was dead but it was that sense of relief when something's over mm -hmm. and then you get that mm -hmm. guilt and that's how I felt and mm -hmm. I never thought about it that way actually until I had read Pet Cemetery, and then also um A Monster Calls by Patrick Ness also discusses like the death of a parent and like the feelings that you get when mm -hmm. it's over um, and how it's normal mm -hmm. you know it is a sense of relief because they're not in pain you're not in pain you can start to move on so I just kind of mm -hmm. saw it in Rachel and then also with um Lewis as well obviously just you know you can really see the pain and just even things like him looking through the photographs at the kitchen table it's just it's just horrible because you can really feel that you know feeling and like even just noticing mm -hmm. like I noticed this time there was like blood on the collar of a shirt and it's mm -hmm. just so unimaginable to me like to lose your child in such a brutal and immediate way yeah and I just think mm -hmm. that it does a really good job of portraying both like the the long-term trauma of grief and then also the immediate right now grief as well so I think mm -hmm. it does it quite well mm -hmm. yeah. yeah I completely agree I mean yeah I also I mean I lost my dad when I in 2017 and so I was relating a lot more to that that side of it in this and he he actually, I mean, he was very sick when he died and I, it, but it was over a, like a matter of a week, it kind mm -hmm. of like came out of nowhere. And then he got like extremely progressively ill over the course of a week and like being in the hospital with him witnessing that it really, it, I mean, I actually did think of like Zelda and because okay. I had that same feeling of like being repulsed, but also like you want to be there for them. But, yeah. and it's like this horrible feeling that it puts inside of you and like the, it makes you just feel guilty you know even though that's a, it's absurd really because mm -hmm. i think it's a natural human inclination to be afraid of of this and especially seeing a loved one in pain is different than seeing a stranger in pain i think i could have walked into any other hospital room in that hospital and not had the same reaction but mm -hmm. seeing you know this person that you admired or looked up to you and and it, or that you looked up to and and in Ra rachel's case she's a little girl and zelda's her older sister so it's kind of a similar dynamic of just seeing someone just slowly or semi-slowly obliterated is is really awful mm -hmm. and it's just the so I, I completely agree I think that this trauma is depicted really well yeah and I think even it's I always feel really bad when I say it but like seeing how Zelda or Rachel felt you know whenever she had to like feed Zelda and stuff and 
you know, she was kind of repulsed by it and didn't want to do it. And I had similar experiences because my dad had MS. So it was over mm. years that he got really ill. Mm. And just by the end, like, I knew that I would be afraid to be like left alone with him. But like yeah. in a way of like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't know what to do if he wants something that I can't do or if he, you know, because he had, tra- he had problems with speaking. And I was like, what if I can't understand him? And it was all this like fear which then turned mm-hmm. into guilt when I was like, you know, looking back, I was like, how terrible were you that you didn't want to sit with your dad? You know, there's just so much wrapped up in it. It's just mm-hmm. a lot of complex feelings to work through, which mm-hmm. is why I just didn't mm-hmm. talk about it for years, didn't, you know, want to acknowledge it. And I would meet new people and, you know, they'd always ask, well, what do your parents do? And I would just make up a lie that he was working in something random you know, I had like a fake person. It was just because I didn't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but now I think mm-hmm. I've kind of, come a long way obviously if I'm talking about it on a podcast mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just kind of this year I've been forced to kind of confront that and deal with it and I feel a lot better about it now so That's finally great. 20 mm-hmm. years later <laughs> <laughs> gotta do it on your own schedule yeah. That's the whole point yeah I mm-hmm. I lost my dad when I was 19 and you know we had a mostly great relationship 90 I've been fond of saying like 90 5% of it was great the other 5% was really really bad um but by and large like I'll take those numbers and he had had cancer for a number of years and had gotten treatment gone through partial remission it would come back um they finally were going to operate to kind of just remove uh one of his organs and that went great the actual operation like they removed everything it would have been cancer free but there was an infection during the operation and they put him into a coma um, and I was at university, like, so that was over Easter weekend when he had the operation. Like, that was the last time he and I ever saw one another and had a conversation. And I just remember seeing my dad, who, you know, loomed so large, just this, like, powerful man. And I think I said, when we did our Cape Fear episode, like, he really did look like Bobby De Niro. <laughs> loomed as this powerful figure in my life, kind of reduced to tears and, like, having to eat mm-hmm. ice chips and apologizing. We're like, don't mm-hmm. apologize, Dad. Like, this is just where you're at right now. And I remember before his operation, he came to visit me at university. Like, we walked around the city of Providence. I bought him ice cream. Like, that's my last real memory of my dad is, like, finally treating him to ice yeah. cream. And then I'm back at college, and my mom is the one dealing with this and not really saying, like, hey, it's really bad. And then being called home to say goodbye to him because he was in a coma that they decided, like, he's not going to get up from this. Mm -hmm. Like, it's time to. And my mom, like, whispering to my dad, like, it's okay. You can go to sleep. You know, he couldn't hear her. So much of grief to me is not about the grief of the person that we've lost, but it's about our own loss, Mm -hmm. especially if you're a person of, of faith. And I know, like, all three of us have watched midnight mass and i won't spoil it but there's like Mm -hmm. a line in one of the final episodes or it's like we're all persons of faith and we believe that there's something after this like that you know like this is just a shell that we're in and then we move on to eternity and be with the persons we love yet at the same time we cling to life even if it's just for a few more minutes so that was a really haunting and powerful Mm -hmm. line got me and i know for for grief for me, it's like you're grieving, you know, Judd has Lewis Berry Church, not because they're sad for the cat, but they're sad for what Ellie's reaction will be mm-hmm. to losing the cat. Lewis 
buries Gage in the pet cemetery because he can't handle his own feelings about losing his son, which is understandable. I mean, I'm not saying Mm -hmm. that's a bad thing. I'm saying that so much of grief is like this person being removed because when you're dead, you don't Mm -hmm. know. I mean, there's nothing, you know, there's just, you don't, you know, you're not cognizant of it. So -hmm. what we're really grieving is our own processing, our own processes we go through for missing this person. And that is what makes the, 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 kind of appeal and the power of the pet cemetery so thrilling and and, and just so so I'm kind of stumbling a little bit here but why mm. it really calls yeah because you yeah. can remove that yeah. grief even for just even if it doesn't go right you, you there's the at least the opportunity to remove that grief and you're willing to play with those odds yeah I think I had mm. I had written just the note that like grief shatters our rationality Um, And I think you see that, especially in the character of Lewis, Mm -hmm. who starts off like by far the most solid, rational. He's a doctor. He sees he he knows Mm. death. He sees it all the time. And I think that kind of says, you know, similar to what I was saying a second ago, like when it's it's just different when it's somebody you love, you know. And um, yeah, I, I, I think that it's a really, really good depiction of that, like happening in real time, you know. And you you had this in your notes, Mike, about making the same mistake endlessly and hoping for a different result. Um, no. You know, if you want to speak some more to that uh, or if anyone else wants to jump in, I think I think that that is exactly what grief can do to you, especially yeah. when you are not mm-hmm. uh, when you're not given an opportunity to process it in a healthy fashion which definitely mm-hmm. this family is not. This is a family that uh, the creeds have a history of, you know, clearly, no. I mean, if you want to get literal about it, like all of these people could have used a therapist at some point to help them process. Yeah. And they didn't really have that. What what Lewis has instead of a therapist is Judd going, hey, you know, if you bury somebody up in this fucked up place, mm-hmm. like they'll come back to life. And right. It is it has it, an it, option to escape that. Yeah. Right. Which is this very primal thing. Uh, you know, if mm-hmm. anybody gave anybody in the heat of their grief that option, they would do the same thing. Yeah, I just you know on that point as well. Sorry, I just want to jump in because no, please, it's no, it's something that I see a lot on maybe on Instagram. But whenever people talk about pet cemetery, I get really annoyed <laughs> whenever I see comments about how you know Lewis like makes such dumb decisions and like what is he doing, blah blah. blah. And it's just I get really defensive because I'm just like. That mm-hmm. no one knows how they'd react in the situation you know you don't think totally. clearly when you're going through such immense grief and people are always like oh he should pull himself together for the child that he still has you know Ellie and and Rachel as well and yes he should but it's not a black and white scenario you know grief is hard enough but then when you have this you know supernatural setting where you could bring them back and they could be okay you don't know um odds are they're not going to be okay but um it's just kind of it frustrates me because I feel like people who think that way maybe haven't experienced such immense grief you know Mm because no Mm -hmm. one is thinking rationally whenever they're going through you know such a horrific experience and I think Lewis you know acts well not rationally but he is he is acting as a consequence of his grief which I think is acceptable in the situation you know you can understand it anyway it is Mm mm-hmm 
You do. And that's the thing I think speaks to the power of King's writing, too, is that when you read this and when you watch this, it makes sense. It's like, yeah, I I don't know what I would do. And would I be able to live with myself if I didn't take the chance that maybe it did bring him back and maybe it fixed everything? Because, you know, if he didn't bury him every day for the rest of his life, he would be thinking about what had happened, what would have happened, what what could could he have brought him back? And I think the thing what I love about this book and this movie so much is the ending and it's so dark, but it's like kind of this this idea that I've been playing with for the last couple of years is that there really aren't happy endings. Like I don't think because everybody's going to die and everything is going to end at some point and it's just the happy moments that we Mm -hmm. celebrate. And I think so much of this story to me now is about parenting and just how terrifying it is to love someone or love something as much as you love a child. And it doesn't have to be a child. I feel like everybody can love something or someone that much that it just becomes so scary that like you can't imagine your life without this person in Mm -hmm. it anymore. And just the weight of that love, I think. And I, I, there's a story about King writing this and what the inspiration for it was. And I'm not sure how true this is, but apparently um, Owen or one of his kids had run into the road and he snatched him back and I think it was fine. But like that's happened to me before with my kids running around in a parking lot. And it's just in the blink of an eye, one of those moments. And it's kind of like, Joanne, what you were saying, like about getting annoyed. Um, I kind of feel that way sometimes about like Lewis, like yeah, he didn't do a fence. Like we said we were going to, when I moved into my last house, we said we were going to put a fence in. And for 10 years we didn't because there's never that immediate reason to do it. And it's so easy not to. And like we make a million mistakes every day and we just get lucky that we don't die or somebody that we love doesn't die. And it's just the off chance that, that you just get caught. Like I remember there's an Oprah show where she's interviewing some woman who was texting while she was driving and she got in a car wreck and it killed all of her children. And she's like, everybody does this. You just got caught, Mm -hmm. you know, you're just the unlucky one that this happened to, but that's life. And I think sometimes I have this, like I have a hard time connecting with people sometimes because I think I'm thinking so much about the end. I'm thinking about what my life will be like without this person that I don't take the time to think about what my life is like now with this person, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I get out of this you know yeah yeah I think that the, a lot of that reaction because I get annoyed by those kind of reactions also and I, I think you know I, I think we're seeing it really really clearly throughout the pandemic you know people just kind of behaving mm-hmm. optimistically in, in the face of like a really horrific thing and, and it, you know like what makes you think that this will be safe or okay when all evidence is to the contrary and it's it's both a right upsetting thing and a very human thing right that we all do and mm-hmm. I, and i and i think a lot of people just aren't who haven't maybe experienced some the other side you know of what the consequences look like who are a, a little more laissez-faire toward it not always of course mm-hmm. of course that there's always exceptions yeah. to that but i i do think that you know it's all about finding a balance because like you said, Jenna can get used and, and Joanne, what you were saying about like getting an anxiety disorder and having to, you know, process being able to speak to it. I mean, I went, I went through that also, like just, I think it's, it is about finding a balance. And and then this, this story depicts the balance falling too far in one direction into Mm -hmm. absurd levels of, of hope as dictated by grief. And the healthy response, you know, since this is a therapy, you know, focused podcast, (laughs) it it is, it's about, you know, 
being able to live in the moment and experience life and not constantly be thinking about death and the inevitability of it and not swing too far in the other direction mm -hmm. where you just deny death and deny that these bad things could ever happen. And I think that that's, I do think the story does a masterful job at like, mm -hmm. at just, you know, getting it all that with, with, through a story without like spelling it out to you. Um, I mm -hmm. think it's really power. I think that's part of what I was saying. It's more than the whole, the whole is more than the sum of its mm -hmm. parts. I think that's partially why I think it just taps into some real truths. Rewatching this again and hearing us talk about parenthood one of the things that struck me on this rewatch was the difference of parenting styles in rachel and lewis and mm -hmm. you can see rachel's are very much clearly bound up in her own parents and what they did because you see with like erwin and i don't remember the i don't even know if the mom <laughs> is ever named in the movie right. um, uh, i don't think in the but, movie but they basically with Zelda, their very ill daughter, they shut her away in the attic and leave Rachel to watch after her. Like they still kind of go out and lead their kind of what would be their normal lives and very much like this is the dirty secret we keep in the attic. And you get the impression that like when Zelda passed, it was like, okay, we'll grieve privately for a while and then for a short period, but then we'll just move on from this. And you mm -hmm. can see where that informs Rachel as a parent, because whenever Ellie comes to both parents with really difficult, you know, the kind of questions that are appropriate for a child to ask and lead to some very uncomfortable conversations as a parent, Rachel's default mode is to give like the answer that offers like comfort but no introspection mm -hmm. as a way to not really it's not really about assisting ellie in that moment but it's a defense mechanism for rachel so she doesn't have to sit with her own discomfort in these conversations um and doesn't have to kind of face the things that she has been burying inside her for years where mm -hmm. lewis is much more comfortable and you don't really know lewis's background in this like his parents are never discussed at all and i know if i remember right the book goes really into the background of lewis and why erwin hated him so much um a little bit yeah and, yeah but lewis is much more comfortable like sitting with ellie and saying talking about some really hard truths about life but also you know maybe he's never like when he tells her like i don't think we just blink out after this i think there is something else i think that mm -hmm. we you know part of us remains and that we just move on to the next plane i think that it's something that he maybe hadn't given a lot of thought to like it, it mm -hmm. kind of like you just look on his face like huh <laughs> but i think he's speaking earnestly i don't think he's just offering cold comfort yeah. i think he's like speaking very earnestly and those are some of the moments you really treasure in childhood when you are able like to kind of learn from your interactions with your children. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And on the other hand of that, I think I have had the experience of Rachel in a lot of ways in that having children has really kind of forced me to confront some things that I have not wanted to think about and talk about for a long time. And I've talked about that on my pod on several episodes about like how they reach certain ages and it triggers certain things from my own childhood. And I think it is it is really interesting to see the different dynamics there. And I think because they kind of go in opposite directions, you know, it's like Lewis starts with um, 
being okay with death and Rachel starts with being terrified and then when it actually happens Mm -hmm. they kind of crisscross and she is the Mm -hmm. one that is able I mean she's still obviously devastated because her child has just died but she is still functioning in a way that Lewis has kind of not but she also doesn't Mm -hmm. know about the pet Mm -hmm. cemetery so it's like I don't know there's a lot of hindsight bias in the story also that like nobody really does anything right or wrong because it's just like how do you judge actions after mm. this? Something like this, I, you know? I'd argue that Judd does <laughs> I, <wrong>. Yeah. <laughs> because... I don't and, know, yeah. And it's I, just and hard I think for me to be mad at Judd. <laughs> I, I do think, and I get, like, Joanne, your point about, like, how would someone act in this situation? Mm-hmm. I think that there's enough, like, you know, Lewis is a scientist. He's a doctor. He's a man of science. Like, at the end, like, I think I said this re-watching this with my family last night outside. When Lewis is carrying Rachel to the pet cemetery in Pascal's, like, don't do it. No. <laughs> uh-huh. And he's like, well, uh, I think that it'll be okay because she hasn't been dead as long. I'm like, this is not backed up by any sort of scientific testing. That like, <laughs> well, um, show me your he's yes. hypothesis. And he's yeah. testing it. Yes. You have to have observable, yes. repeatable phenomena. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. And the, the repeatable <laughs> phenomenon you have is you have the the dog. I know. Cat, <laughs> Timmy Banner. Timmy Bannerman. Baderman. There's a bull Bader- in the Baderman. <laughs> The bull and now For Gage, sure. like all have come back very, sure. very. But bad. maybe this one more so, time, you know. That's right. <laughs> maybe <Rachel's only> especially <laughs> but bad. it might work for us. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, but that's the whole. That is the whole point. Is that you know, it's like the grief makes you act irrationally. <laughs> like and yes. it gives you a false yeah. hope that yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's that, and I think a certain amount of hubris goes into sure. it. Sure. Well. Yeah. Sure. I think yeah. you're all in the dark thrall of the evil loons. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah the loons in quotation marks that definitely aren't horrifying monsters well and so i wanted to mention also the atmosphere and i know joanne that's something that you noted too and we talked a little bit about this mike i think you mentioned it is a good halloween mm-hmm. horror movie mm-hmm. and i think it's great too like the and especially compared to the remake when they're hiking up and they're at the burial ground like it is gorgeous yeah. and i mm-hmm. am a huge fan of hiking and so i watched that and i'm like oh this is amazing it look it just looks great and i know this was filmed in yeah. maine and it's mm-hmm. just the setting like that's part of what I think this movie gets yeah. so right is it just feels real. It just feels like a Stephen King novel as well, and like no. we, mm-hmm. just because it's autumn as well, and you have all the leaves, it's just like beautiful to watch. And we went to New England a few years ago on a road trip, and I just kind of felt like it perfectly encapsulates what we saw there, and um, especially the cemetery, mm-hmm. uh, Mount Hope, I think it's called. And uh, we visited there on our trip. Oh, yeah, um, we went there on our trip, and it was autumn as well, and it was just gorgeous. And I remember the tour guide who was, you know, doing a Stephen King tour, and he said that it's a really beautiful spot because it celebrates life as well as being a place to remember the dead. And people would go there and have picnics, etc., because it was just a really beautiful spot. So I thought in the movie it just looks amazing and then as well just the creed house it's just the house of my dreams in rural maine Mm -hmm. and then judd's house across Mm -hmm. the road just really lacks in comparison to be honest (laughs) it just looks so shabby from the outside i'm like how is this across the road from the creed house which is beautiful yeah you know that realtor hates it (laughs) you can tell Uh, and just like the the clothes they were and like 
Lewis is wee, you know, his wee bomber jacket he wears. It's very attractive. <laughs> and Rachel's outfits. I'm obsessed with Rachel's outfits as well. Oh, they're great. Like, I love the outfits. Her yes. Oh, my God. The matching headband and the dress. Oh, I love it. Uh-huh. Yeah, the white button-up yeah. shirt with the little bow. So cute. Mm-hmm. That is the least <laughs> casual outfit of all yeah, time. Yeah, it's like the it most, is. like, 80s It looks business. like it hurts. Yes. Yeah, I love it, And though. she's running I back to try and save everybody, and she's wearing, like, a skirt and high heels and a blouse. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Rachel, please change before you. Yeah. I'm not flying. <laughs> some athleisure. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say at the end of the movie, the one shoe off and one heel that. on uh-huh. added such a great, eerie yeah. touch to the end because it's not quite... It's in it's not in sync with what you would normally hear because it's it's just a beat too long with each footstep. And I thought yeah. that was really, really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Like that's one of the little things I noticed on this rewatch. I'm like, oh, that's a fantastic touch. Yeah, there's a lot of these little decisions. There's just like as a filmmaker, you know, you appreciate like, oh, they had to think mm-hmm. about that and they had to think about what that would mm-hmm. do as an effect, you know, and I just I love that. And I've grown up hearing that it's bad luck to walk with one shoe on and one shoe off. So every time, like, that's just one of my really deeply ingrained mm-hmm. superstitions. Hmm. And I think it, I mean, it is bad luck for uh, both of them. Yeah. You know. I do well, love yeah. Gage the fancy lad. <laughs> just love, what a he fancy so boy. so cute. Yeah. He I is. God. Oh. I, I found myself getting a little stuck. I'm like, he still has the proportional strength of a baby so he shouldn't be that hard to he's got like he's flying and shit man like he's got like superpowers out of the attic is so funny he just like flings himself he's falling yes (laughs) got a gravity doing a lot of that work but just the oh my god look i found talk until you're getting terrorized by an undead toddler and we'll see how you fare right there's our observable data (laughs) you know like i am by no means a tough guy i will admit this but there is not a baby in this world I couldn't take in a fair fight. Okay, so um, I will fight anyone's baby, and that we can, you know, challenge just extended, isolate, y'all. isolate that clip, isolate that clip. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, the scene that gets me almost more that it not more. There's nothing I think worse than when Gage does die, but like the scene where Lewis has to kill him mm-hmm. a second time. Mm-hmm. That is just it just rips my heart out in his little no fair. No it, fair. I like that he's like oh. still childlike in his evilness, like him going like, uh-huh. let's play hide and seek and like, no fear, no fear. And he's like frowning at him. Mm. And it's like, it's like, it's so cute and it's so upsetting and it's so sad. Uh-huh. And like, and it's so funny also. And it's like, it's just, it's like a cog- big cognitive dissonance. <laughs> right. You're going to hate, you're going to hate me. But when, when he, Uh-oh. when he falls, <laughs> like after getting stuck in the neck and he like oh. finally falls, like, Ada and I, we just like my wife watched this behind like both eyes. She actually said like, "Okay, you need to come to bed now and and make sure that I fall asleep. Like you are oh. not allowed to just not." <laughs> yeah. But Ada there. and I, my daughter and I, when the kid when Gage falls, we just couldn't help it because it's such a funny little pratfall that we just laughed. <laughs> I mean, I'm not kidding. It was like it was a moment of really black humor. Plus, kids falling is. <laughs> you got to laugh. Oh, yeah. Anyway. Sometimes you but just it laugh. fits the tone of that. You know, it's yeah. like, it, it's it's perfect. That scene is perfect, you know? And I think that's partly where the the origin or the remake fails is it doesn't have these moments of like, Laura, what you said, it transcends the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. Something about it just works, and you know? 
One final thought on that that I forgot to mention earlier, and it kind of goes into the atmosphere. I really like what they did with the theme of all the pictures that are in Rachel's childhood home. There's that Uh scene where she's having the nightmare and they're all kind of like tilted and there's, and the camera is at a Dutch angle and it's very like repulsion, but then they keep focusing on the creepy, you know, velvet, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. button up plus top hat picture. And then having that, inexplicably be the outfit that he's wearing it sort of says like this is really a supernatural force that is like tapping into her memories and using mm-hmm. zelda and all yeah. of her stuff like weaponizing all that stuff against her mm-hmm. and like and then w- the film also in in editing when after the moment that gage dies like looking through all those family photos and it's just silent and when lewis is looking at gage he's it's intercut with those flashbacks to gage like in the sunlight with the kite mm-hmm. like seeing mm-hmm. dead gage mm-hmm. and alive gage and i just mm-hmm. feel like it's this conceptual gesture from like a filmmaking perspectives that like it's really it kind of acts on you subconsciously mm-hmm. and i just thought it was such a nice touch that you know is so creative and it really speak. It feels very real to how like we remember things, mm-hmm. and it's all this stuff with like there. This thing mm-hmm. is using your memories against you, and photographs and pictures are how we remember things from our from our lives. And I don't know. There's just something about the way that was all done. And I was like, damn, that was good. That was good. Yeah, and I think even Zelda, like her dress was very similar to the one that Gage ends up in. Because I was reading yeah. about it online, and apparently Mary Lambert had an obsessed uh, fascination with those you know the new the new old new england paintings mm. because mm-hmm. children were dying mm-hmm. at a young age so they would have these portraits of them you yes. know and they look very stiff and they have weird little outfits and stuff mm-hmm. and apparently they had the costume for gage first and then they kind of made the portrait mm. from that oh that's uh, great. and then also obviously zelda has like the blue kind of velvety dress as well just so it all kind yeah. of yeah just to trigger Touch. rachel i guess mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I think I, that's like that's that kind of thoughtfulness that you know I think makes that elevates this movie. Yeah. Like a lot of movies in this era, especially they don't go. It's like that's some like Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings level of attention to detail. Like you know, like yeah. and it, and it makes a like mm-hmm. it makes a difference. Yeah. It really you feel it. It does. And in the book, it's the, there's a lot of talk about Oz the Great and Terrible, which I think is kind of what this mm-hmm. is alluding to. But I like that it it is its own spin because it works so much more visually than mm-hmm. I think what the book would. And that's where I think, again, a director understands where to stick to King's story, yes. but where to take the feeling of it and kind of make it into something else. Um, and speaking of Zelda, I wanted to um, mention, and Mike, you have something in your notes too about yeah. Zelda and about disability and horror that I think it's kind Mm -hmm. of like the Indian burial ground, I think is kind of important to just mention, you know? Yeah, it is like, obviously one of the horrific images that really are horrific moments that come from this movie, even more than Gage, I think Zelda sticks with viewers like more. Mm -hmm. I think there was a, like I mentioned seeing like the clips of this movie at the haunting attraction near us. And there's a reason they make the deliberate choice of going with Zelda than they do with Gage. It's a phenomenal performance. It's scary as hell, but it's also like, you know, very of its time that like this person is horrific because they have like this debilitating disease and therefore Mm -hmm. they need to be isolated and and exploited for horror at that point. And it's, it's sad. It doesn't necessarily need, like the book doesn't need it. Do you know what I mean? Like if you excised Zelda from the book in the movie, you there are other ways to get her to like Rachel's issues that she has with like death. I think we've talked about them personally, our own personal reasons why 
death and grief can be so traumatizing. It works. It works really well. And I think that why I'm not completely against it is because Zelda is depicted from the eyes of like an eight-year-old child who's not fully developed and not fully matured. And therefore, what you're seeing is perhaps even like an exaggerated sense of the body what and was yes it is like because you're remembering it cartoonishly gr- grotesque yes. you know mm-hmm. i do think about because i worked with persons with developmental disabilities and traumatic brain injury yeah. for a number of years and saw the ways that like the body betrays the person and the mind betrays a person and i often looked at either differently or pityingly by others and I kind of hope we can maybe move away from yeah. that as mm-hmm. a trope. I, yeah, I, I have conflicting feelings about this because, uh, you know, it speaks to our discussion earlier of witnessing illness and that feeling of being repulsed by it, even if it's someone you love, mm-hmm. making it hard to care for them in that moment, I think is really important to the character of Rachel um, and just that sense of guilt that she carries with her. I think where this maybe falls short is in only depicting that side of it and not depicting mm-hmm. like how maybe what Zelda mm-hmm. was going through or that, you know, that, that, mm-hmm. that, that is a discussion that needs to happen because I mean, obviously I completely agree. And I think it is a larger horror trope to just show somebody like mm-hmm. deformed and that therefore they're evil or whatever. And it definitely falls into that trap a little bit because Zelda is depicted as nothing but a monster. And mm-hmm. that, that is a little, that, that is, you know, de- definitely could use some tweaking. Uh, but I do think it's important to show what illness can do to the body and how it can affect those around them. I just think it's a really fine line to walk. Mm-hmm. And I certainly don't have the answer, you know, as to how to do this well. Right. But I think, yeah. I think it's something that's worth exploring and discussing. I just don't know if it was handled as well as it could have been. <laughs> no. Yeah. And that's fair because it's, you know, also 35, 40 years old. So yeah. That... Let's not remember that yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and the other the other issue is it is also a male actor playing mm-hmm. a yeah. female role. And I think that was done for effect, too. And I think, you know, and again, like, I don't want to say I give it a pass because, you know, I think it's important to talk about these things. I do understand because it is it was just a different era of filmmaking. And I think they I can't remember exactly how they handled it in the the remake, which mm-hmm. I guess speaks to the power. Yeah, of the remake, I don't remember but, it all. You know, I think it's just it's no. Not good. I remember her being, I remember a part with a dumbwaiter, I think. Yeah, um, passing the food yeah. and her coming down the, mm-hmm. I don't know what you call that. Is it a dumbwaiter? I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah. Yeah, no, but I think that is a, a dumbwaiter. Yeah. Yeah. There's not but, a lot memorable about But I do that. think, oh, God, I just can't remember a single thing about <laughs> depiction. I remember a couple of things that really, really upset me, like just uh, maybe unnecessarily. <laughs> but yeah, that might be. That's a topic for another day. <laughs> Anyways, but I do I do think it's important for us to mention those kinds of things, you know, because that's mm-hmm. how we learn and that's how we grow and that's how we evolve the conversation. And um, I wanted to mention my boy, Pascal. I was say, speaking I of giving him. a pass, let's talk exactly. <laughs> Oh my God, I love him. I don't know what it is. And I, I wonder if it is maybe this was kind of as my evolution with horror has grown, like he starts as a terrifying figure and he becomes like, he's a helpful spirit. And I mean, I don't, you could argue with how much he actually helps, but like he becomes a comfort Mm -hmm. to me in this movie because he feels 
safe in a way. Like I know that there is somebody that is on the side of death that is going to be comforting to me in these moments, even though the end is still tragic. But I just, I love him. I don't know what it is about. Maybe it's the actor or something. And there are some pictures of him like getting put in his makeup that, Oh, yeah, I don't know, something about him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just love him. And I think it's because he is friendly in this movie that terrified me so much, you know. Maybe it's the red shorts. <laughs> the tiny red shorts. <laughs> Imagine if in death, if your spirit walks the earth, you have to yeah. wear your last outfit. Yeah, I think about that, that a lot. That is your outfit. Oh, I always goodness. think about the underwear that I'm wearing. <laughs> I know. It's just something I think about a lot. Uh I think Jen, Jen might have, may have frozen. frozen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> In a moment of, of mirth, at least. <laughs> okay. I'm go. back. Sorry. Uh, okay. Um, uh, my, no my feelings for Pascal were just too hot. Anyways. <laughs> hey, yeah. Too, too hot for TV. Hot and I will say, be. I don't want to date him. I just find him very, I don't know. He's, he's an early childhood crush. The actor is, he's charming. And I, I, mm. I you know, sexual feelings aside um <laughs> i wasn't like watching it this time i was like i do kind of like he almost they almost make him comic relief for that whole mm. section while uh mm -hmm. she while rachel is fleeing from chicago back to maine he kind of likes he's at first he's really creepy and eerie and then like during that whole sequence like when she wakes up on the plane and yeah. he's just sitting like a row back just kind of <laughs> smiling yes you know mm. it's kind of like it becomes a little silly i don't know i i, I both love it and find it like it takes me out of it a little bit but it's like mm -hmm. that's where that camp factor comes yeah. in and i'm like i don't know i do like it though i enjoy it it's yeah. just maybe not right it's at like that a... moment i guess but yeah i want the continuing adventures of pascal and that 18 wheeler truck driver oh yeah it's like yes. a large like large thing through maine yeah mm -hmm. oh it'd be awesome it's like a release like, valve, i can't I go any further yeah yeah, yeah. I think I was and i also think this guy but... is fun he's got some good tunes in this truck mm -hmm. so yeah yeah. Um, well, is there anything else we want to talk about before we move on? Or shall we end on our, our strong feelings about one Victor Pascal? Um, I, think, I think we've got all the rocks out of this soil. <laughs> I think so. And now it's time for an uplifting moment. This is where we share any grounding or coping techniques and any self-care that may have been particularly effective for us recently. Grounding and coping techniques are the little tips, tricks, mantras, or practices that help us get through the tough days and tough moments. And self-care is anything that makes us feel good or feel better. And um, I, ugh, it's been a rough week, um, but I have been, I do this weird thing where I take little floor naps sometimes. Um, I got a big fluffy rug and I got a big fluffy Ooh. slanket that I just always have on me. And so sometimes when I'm trying to figure something out or I'm getting really kind of stressed out or just getting tired, I just set a timer on my phone for 10 minutes and I just lay down on the floor and I just sleep for like 10 minutes. And it usually I wake up and I feel a little bit better. So yeah, that's my little, just taking 10 minutes out. And I mean, a nap for me is what I like because I just don't sleep that much. But, um, you know, it could be some, sometimes I just have watched 10 minutes of a TV show where I don't think about anything else and just take those that quick little break, I guess a brain break, you know, just mm -hmm. when it, when it's starting to feel too 100%. much. So, yeah. <laughs> got as soon as you guys got to power down. Yep, exactly. I'm like, nope, just stepping away from <laughs> this for a minute. Anyone else care? Joanne, is there anything you'd like to share? Um, yeah. So 
I'm a big advocate for exercise in general and um, for my own mental mm-hmm. health and anxiety and stuff. But something else I've discovered this year has been painting by numbers, which oh. I always think sounds so juvenile, but oh. it really is very relaxing. Because uh-huh. um, mm-hmm. it's nice to be creative uh-huh. in a way that is also quite structured <laughs> because the thought of taking mm-hmm. paint to a blank canvas makes me really anxious, actually, which is the opposite of why I'm doing mm, this mm-hmm. activity right and um, so yeah I like to paint by numbers while I'm listening to podcasts or recently I'm um watching the x-files for the very first time um, oh, wow! so I like wow. to paint while I do that and it's just very relaxing and mindless and I'm kind of trying to pass it on to lots of people just because it's quite a nice way to zone out and do something creative while not thinking about it so yeah mm-hmm. I really enjoy that totally that's awesome yeah I I well I love those kind of things. I lo- I have like several apps on my phones that are like basically glorified coloring mm. books where you find certain that, you know, it's basically paint by numbers on your phone. But um, so I definitely understand. Yeah. I think doing anything like slightly structured with your hands yeah. like can be really, really great. It's, I've talked on previous episodes about getting into pottery and I'm continuing to do that, even though it's extremely difficult, but that fills me with like an angry spite. Like I'm going to fucking do this <laughs> fuck you clay and i can't remember if i mentioned this on a previous episode either but i i signed up for hbo max primarily to watch malignant <laughs> and the great pottery uh-huh. throwdown um <laughs> which is a reality show very much in the structure of the great british baking Ooh. show but with pottery and it is like very british it's very soothing um they t- do this pottery on Stoke-on-Trent. I have no idea where that is in the UK. I know but where that is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to say, you maybe know where it is. Um, and uh, it's it's just like the things they have these people do ha- now having started pottery. I'm like, holy <laughs> shit. That would, that I would just die like on the spot, like throw 12 mugs in five minutes. And you're just like, what? And like, uh, but it's, it's still like a really like pleasant and watching people do something creative and with their hands. And I love. I love watching pottery and watching it like kind of come up on the wheel and it looks, they make it look so easy. It's not, but I just love like the visual of it. I find very soothing. So I've been falling asleep to that show in bed with my laptop a lot lately to kind of turn my brain off. So I know Jen, you said it's been a tough week. Like, yeah, this has been, we're only, we just got through September for the school year and it feels like it's been much longer. I'm talking to some of my colleagues that have done this a lot longer and they're like, this, this, this isn't good. <laughs> so there have been some pretty stressful days. I was talking about a couple things off air that are just fucking bananas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I could laugh about it if I didn't have to work there, but wow. Thank you, David Fincher. Anyway, I have been like doing a lot of giving gratitude for the little things that I do have in making especially things that I have to like to look forward to uh, at the end of the day. And that really helps like going, Oh, we have these events coming up. Like I know like being able to travel for a film fest in a couple of weeks to go host it or different family things that we have planned or just things I enjoy doing being like, well, I'm really grateful and satisfied that I have this to look forward to and that life doesn't have to be, one trudge from one day to the next just kind of repeating the same mistakes and that helps like it puts me in a much better place Mm -hmm. mentally i'll often break my day into chunks where i'm like okay like here is how the day is going to shake out and then i can look 
and be like, great, it's 11 a.m. I'm halfway through the day. I only have this, this, and this to do. And then the rest of the day belongs to me. And that's kind of a nice thing. Is being like my day mm. belongs to me at this point. That makes me feel like I have like a lot more control over things, which in turn definitely helps out my mental state mm. tremendously. Nice. Absolutely. I love chunking. Mm-hmm. I put a lot of chunks yeah. and things on my calendar to make sure I, I do the yeah. things. Mm. So. I love chunking. I love chunk from the Goonies. I love chunky monkey love, ice cream. Oh, <laughs> oh it's oh, good. Monkey. I love chunky yeah. peanut butter. Yeah. And uh well, never mind. I was gonna make a gross. Actually joke I prefer creamy. Do it. Uh, uh, well, we want to hear from you. What kind of chunks do you love? Have you ever buried? <laughs> have you ever buried anything in the woods? <laughs> what kind of accent do you have? And have you ever sleepwalked anywhere weird? Or just what's on your mind? You can answer these questions and more by following us on socials at Psycho A Pod. You can also join our Facebook group, the Psychoanalysis Podcast Support Group, which is a private and moderated space to share things, uh, to share about the things we talk about in the episodes or anything else that might be on your mind and you can also email us at psychoapod at gmail.com if you want to share privately and if you have a spare moment please leave us a rate and review on apple itunes it really helps other people find the pod and it makes us feel good thank you to those who have already left us reviews it really means a lot to us um and our homework question for this week is is a fun one tell us about your favorite pet growing up and maybe if i can find a a picture of my dog Misty I might share it because she was a sweetie oh yeah I'll have to share some pictures too got I have a cat and a dog for my childhood yes and we want to hear about them and we want to see them and you know this is uh, this is a question where the pets speak sorry that was (laughs) 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 it's gonna kick me out again just out of out of principles after that um anyways So what is up for us next? Well, we are not letting up with the heavy themes and the heavy conversations. We are continuing. (laughs) Although I do think we found a lot of joy in this movie, too, because I do really love it. Yes. So we are continuing our theme of psychopathy for the month of October with Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. And uh, yeah, fun times. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm nude and prepared. <laughs> it's yeah. I think there, it's it's gonna. I think it's gonna be a good episode. There's a lot to talk about. Unlike the portrait in this movie, <laughs> Michael Rooker, Henry is not a fancy lad. Fancy lad. <laughs> Otis Tool though is he a fancy oh, lad? Otis Tool is not a not fancy, fancy lad. lad. Okay. No fancy whatsoever. lads to be found oh, dear. in this one. anyways so (laughs) and for even more of us mike what is going on in the world of patreon so shout out to our patrons yeah we it's we've got four in the past week so i'm gonna give some thanks right now uh we want to say thank you to everybody who's contributing to our patreon page we hope you're enjoying the bonus content i think one of our goals heading into 2022 will be to maybe get things up on a more like kind of a regular basis Mm -hmm. and maybe like retool things a little bit so we can get stuff up there as quick as possible for you all and hopefully you enjoy re otis Mm -hmm. tool we have to read yes i'm sorry i had to say it's like i get sick demons possess me with this excellent so i want to say thanks to a few folks i want to say thank you to sarah for jumping on at the $10 Mads Mickelson as Hannibal Lecter oh, wow. level. Thanks, Sarah. I want to say thank you to CB Aww. at the 
ten dollar uh, Mads Mickelson is Hannibal Lecter level. Let's say thank you to Laura at the three dollar Brian Cox is Hannibal Ooh, Lecter level. And finally to Mark at the five dollar Anthony Hopkins is Hannibal Lecter level. Hi Mark. Um, wow. you, thank you all so thank much. you so much. Yeah, that means so much it's, to us. It really does. Um, If you want to become a patron of our show, go to patreon.com slash psychoanalysis podcast. I will be reaching out to everyone at the 50. Actually, by the time you hear this, anyone who has been uh, on the $50 tier where you get to pick the episode theme and one of the titles for it, like we should have you guys all lined up and ready to go so that is still an option for folks if you want to like give us 50 bucks you get to pick a movie and one of the topics in psychology that we cover we negotiate a bit you know it's something we're <laughs> the about. art of the deal yes. oh god yeah. <laughs> Please. Oh, God. um speaking of don't worry it's not like <laughs> so but yes but <laughs> so thank you so much like it means a ton it helps keep the show going and you know there's there's a healthy amount of money in that patron (laughs) fund right now so i'm gonna go put it all on black later today and we're just gonna let the no mike no we talked about this let it ride all right well speaking of uh letting it ride i don't don't know how that's what anyways uh let's wrap up with some plugs (laughs) joanne where can we find you online and what is coming up for you in october Yes, so you can find me over at JobaCity9 on Instagram, um, where I'm constantly recommending books and mm-hmm. movies and so forth, especially horror books, but I'll honestly read anything. <laughs> um, this month, I'm hosting a read-along of um, Ray Bradbury, Something Wicked This Way Comes, which I know nice. the Losers Club are having an episode on. Mm-hmm. So I'm very excited to listen to that when I'm done. <laughs> That's actually a reread for me. It's one of my favorites. So very happy to revisit it with some people on Instagram. Perfect for the speaking season. It really season. is. Yes. Yeah. And you recommended another that. Ray Bradbury, I think, that I read last year, which I really loved. It's the short stories, and I can't remember. October Country. Is it October Country? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Great yeah. for October, mm-hmm. incidentally enough. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so check that out because you do have a lot of really fantastic recommendations. Um, and Thanks. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And I just reread the Behind the Horror one, which I found out about from I love yeah. Too. Yeah. Um, and Mike, where can we find you? So you can find me at Mike underscore Snoonian over on Twitter. And you can find me on things like what do you call it? Letterboxd. <laughs> uh, I think my username is Mike Chump Change. And you can find my other show, The Pod and the Pendulum, wherever you get your podcasts. And Laura. Oh God. It just occurred to me that I have to do the oh. thing. Fancy oh, no. Latin. Oh, no. Yeah. I, okay. So you can find me on Twitter at underalls, U N D E R A L L S, much like the fancy lad <laughs> diaper that you wear underneath your velvet frock. Uh, because you're you're dead oh. and you're a child, so you gotta wear that diaper. You gotta stay diaped up. I'm so sorry. That's at underalls, U N D E R A L L S on Twitter. Uh 
I'm also on Letterboxd. I should start dropping that, but then that would pressure me to actually update it. But we can talk about that at another time. <laughs> I should be updating my Letterboxd more. I love that site. <laughs> and you can occasionally find me on the Losers Club and Halloweenies <laughs> podcasts as well. Hey. And you can find me at Jim Ferratu on all of the social places. And you can also find me uh, co-hosting the Losers Club podcast. We just did an episode on Midnight Mass that I believe is available on our Patreon now. And um, I am not going to be on the Something Wicked This Way Comes episode, but I am really excited to oh, listen no. to that. Yeah, no, that was what I've been doing a lot of the book ones. So I was taking mm. a little bit of a break for that. But I am going to be on some fun stuff coming up. And there's a lot of really cool stuff. I think the next King book is Storm of the Century or King Adaptation. So that, oh, that'll awesome. be a fun one. There's some Hot Wings characters in that one. <laughs> uh, so yeah check that out and you can also find me on the white ladies in crisis podcast and our next we just recorded an episode on the babysitter's seduction so look out for that and our next movie is going to be black widow which i have not seen oh uh, i'm excited that's fun it's been a long time <laughs> since i've seen that show. i'm excited about holy that holy hell i forgot about that movie <laughs> i think a lot of people have yeah but not gina she was like this is our next one for sure um so yeah that's where you can find me um, and that's our episode on Pet Cemetery. Joanne, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for recommending this movie. This was so much fun to revisit and such a fun conversation to have with you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I absolutely loved it. Because not only did I get to discuss one of my favorite movies, but kind of my favorite book. So mm -hmm. it worked out well. It did, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, someday I wonder if I like the movie or the book better of this. Probably the book. But anyways, they're both fantastic. Yeah, they're so thank you. Listeners, thank you for spending time with us. Please make sure to take care of yourselves and each other and with that let's sign off we came here to chew bubblegum and take care of ourselves and, and we're, we're all bubblegum bubblegum bubble one day we'll get good at that <laughs> <laughs> i want to chew bubblegum with you <laughs> with you <laughs> you could use that chewed bubblegum to plug the hole in chud's deck after. stop it mike, oh. mike. mike. no too no. soon mike no <laughs>